morning scripture reading is from the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Luke 15, 1 and 2. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. I don't know who did it, but thank you. At the end of last year, you were asked for sermon requests. And I asked you to fill in this blank with one of the sermon series, I'd like to hear a sermon on blank. And someone, I don't know who, whether they're older or younger, suggested this topic, how to treat sinners. How to treat sinners. I'm so glad that they made that suggestion. It's the Apostle Paul who would write, Faithful is the saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. From the songs we have been singing this morning, repeatedly we have stressed Jesus is the friend of sinners. Are those of us who wear the name of Christ friends of sinners too? It seems to me that we ought to be. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31. In our association with other people... Our ultimate goal is to praise and honor God in every area of our lives, and surely that includes our relationships. Our relationships. So I am so thankful that someone suggested how to treat sinners, and it seems to me that we don't have to excuse sin. To love sinners like Jesus did. We don't have to excuse sin. God is of purer eyes than to look upon sin. Habakkuk 1 and verse 13. Sin will separate one from God. Isaiah 1, 18. The wrath, the anger of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. Romans 1, 18. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 6.23. No, we don't have to excuse sin to love sinners. If one wants to see how to treat sinners, look no farther than the Savior, Jesus Christ. 
What I'd like to do this morning as we look at that theme, how to treat sinners, is look at five passages from the Gospel of Luke. Five passages where Jesus was criticized for His treatment of sinners. I guess that proves a statement in the book of Luke. Luke 6 and verse 26. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. The likelihood of everyone liking us if we would be like Jesus is minimal. Because Jesus himself said, Woe unto you when all speak well of you. If you stand for Jesus, watch, stand fast in the faith, behave yourselves as men, be strong, let all be done in love. 1 Corinthians 16 verses 13 and 14. If you live your life having the honor and praise of God as your goal, there will be people who will not be that friendly towards you. But as we were singing this morning, when we are like Jesus and seek to honor and love Him, what a friend we have in Jesus. So let's look at these five passages from the Gospel of Luke this morning. The first passage is Luke 5, verses 27 through 32. Open your Bible to that passage, Luke 5, 27 through 32. And really the controversy concerning Jesus and his associations especially revolves around his association with Matthew. Matthew or Levi was a tax collector. And when one looks at Luke 5 verses 27 and 28, Jesus says to Matthew, follow me. Here is the power of an invitation. There was something so amazing about the life of Jesus that sinners were drawn to Him. And maybe that's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Are the lost drawn to us or are they all repulsed by us? No one was ever more holy, more pure, more interested in truth than Christ, and yet sinners often found themselves drawn to Him because they knew He genuinely cared about them. He said to Matthew, follow me. And then you see something in Luke 5, 27 through 32 of the joy of a response in faith. He comes to Jesus, someone who's weary and heavy laden, a tax collector who would have been looked down upon and scorned and would have been considered scum by his fellow Jews. Matthew follows Jesus. And then the text says... He has a great feast. The word for great is the word magos in the original. A mega feast is being held. And you know what? When we see the life of Matthew, we see 
that people ought to respond to Jesus with joy and celebration. And this is the first of many celebrations that we'll read about in the Gospel of Luke. When people really see who Jesus is and follow Him, there is joy in their life. And isn't that something we often see in the second volume, the book of Acts? Luke and Acts go together. When people come to Jesus in repentance, there is joy. Continue with me. But when you look at Luke 5, 27 through 32, you look at the life of Matthew and he has this great feast. He invites other tax collectors and sinners. Because when you have found something of tremendous value, you want to share it with others. It was only natural that Matthew would want other tax collectors and people that were looked down upon by many in society to come to know something about Jesus. And so he has this great feast in which they are invited to see Jesus. Now, in that part of the world, it's a little different here, but in that part of the world, table fellowship said a lot about you, who you were willing to sit at a table with. Think about the Lord's Supper we just observed and the fact that people can have table fellowship with the Son of God. That's a marvelous thought. But the expression we might use nowadays, a person is known by the company that they keep. And here is Jesus in the presence of tax collectors and sinners. And the Word of God says, notice this, that some of the religious leaders murmured to the disciples. Isn't that the way criticism often is? Every now and then it's face to face, but more often than not, it's the indirect type of criticism that occurs in someone's life. The Lord understands that. When you and I have to deal with criticism where people didn't have enough backbone to talk to us to our face, but went behind our back, well, they go to the disciples. Why is it that your master eats with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus, knowing men, John 2, 24 and 25, knows what conversation is going on behind his back, and he makes an argument that cannot be refuted. The well don't need a physician, but the sick do. The well don't need a physician, but the sick do. If no one is sick, it won't be very long before doctors are in the unemployment lines. What Jesus says next is nothing short of a mission statement. What are you all about? I have come not to call the righteous, 
but the unrighteous to repentance. Mark it down. Why is the Lord associating with them? He really shouldn't be in table fellowship with them because a person is known by the company that they keep. And Jesus simply says, a doctor can't be a doctor for very long without a sick room. And I've come to the sick room so that the sick can repent and become righteous in me. How to treat sinners. We treat sinners like Jesus did when we live our lives associating with others out of love because we understand Jesus did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Next passage. Luke chapter 7, verses 31 through 35. Luke 7, 31 through 35. In this particular passage, ladies and gentlemen, the controversy surrounds John the baptizer in Jesus. It was Matthew and Jesus in Luke 5, 27 through 32. But in Luke 7, 31 through 35, the controversy revolves around John the baptizer and Jesus. Now notice Luke 7, verses 29 and 30. And you might want to mark it in your Bibles. Because that passage says that many of the religious leaders rejected the purpose of God not being baptized in John's baptism. Many religious leaders rejected the purpose of God not being baptized in John's baptism. And if that was a serious enough offense, brothers and sisters, that it's mentioned by inspiration, it's also serious to reject the purpose of God by not submitting to the baptism of Jesus Christ. Why not? When you look at verses 31 through 35 of Luke chapter 7, here is what we see. Jesus makes a comparison between himself and John the baptizer. And really here is the point. It's amazing how people can take a fact or a truth and distort and twist it out of proportion until it becomes an accusation. But that's exactly what happens here with Jesus and John. John came, and of course he was the forerunner of Jesus, the one who came to prepare the way to make his path straight. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The mission of John the baptizer, he did exceedingly well. His mission was to prepare the way for Jesus and to get out of the way himself. And he said, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. John 3 and verse 30. And Jesus himself commended John for his life and for his ministry when he said, 
there has not been a greater born of woman than John the baptizer. But I want you to know something about John. John's personality and the Lord's personality weren't the same. John ate locust and wild honey. Notice what the Lord says. He says this about John. John came eating no bread and drinking no wine. But you say he has a demon. Not everything people says is true is true, is it? Not every accusation made is true. And here's what I want you to understand. By them saying uh, that John the baptizer has a demon, they've already played that card, haven't they? They've let us know exactly what the real thinking is. This is why we reject the purpose of God, not being baptized. We think he must have a demon because he is solemn and he is somber and he's very serious about his role. You think about John and they probably thought of him as some kind of crazy lunatic out in the wilderness preaching. That's really what they would have thought about him. And then Jesus comes along. The Son of Man has come. Eating and drinking. See the parallels? John has come. Not eating or drinking wine, but you say. Jesus, the Son of Man, has come. Eating and drinking, but you say, Look at Him. Look at Him. He's despicable. I detest him. A person shouldn't be doing what Jesus is doing. He is a glutton and a drunkard, a wine-bibber. They accuse him of that. It is no more true of Jesus than being a demon-possessed person was true of John. But people don't care about the facts once they make their stubborn, proud, arrogant minds up. And that's how some religious leaders were viewing Jesus. Look at him. A drunkard and a glutton. But even then, there may be just a shred of truth that's initially taken and blown out of proportion. But here it is. A friend. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. You know what Jesus is really saying to these people? He's saying, you can't please some folks. Here was John, and he was serious... And he was solemn and he did his ministry well. And people did not respond to him, including some of the religious leaders. Many of them. I have come and now they complain that I do this. That I'm hopeful. That I'm cheerful. They didn't like John's seriousness and they don't like my hopefulness. Wisdom 
should cause people to respond to what is right through the personality of whoever's proclaiming what is right. You have an obligation before Christ to respond positively to the will of God when the will of God is proclaimed and taught. That's the wise course of action. Passage number three, and it's one of my favorites in the Gospel of Luke. Again, Jesus comes under criticism. But He comes under criticism in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, because of a woman and what she does. Concerning him. There are three primary characters in this story. Luke 7, 36-50. The first one is Simon the Pharisee. Three times in a couple of verses, Luke tells us, Simon the Pharisee. He wants us to know something. He wants us to know that religious people can be outrageously rude. Simon is. It's not just a first century problem. Religious people can be outrageously rude. Then there is an unnamed woman who is a sinner... If Simon the Pharisee shows outrageous, outrageous rudeness, this woman who is a sinner and a great sinner, her sins which are many, Jesus refers to in this passage, shows outrageous adoration. She takes an alabaster vial full of precious perfume... And coming behind Jesus, she takes the perfume and pours it out on the feet of Jesus. And she lets down her hair, which would have been a violation of all decorum in that part of the world, a public scene. Something a woman in the East would have done only maybe in the privacy of her own home. But she lets down her hair and with her tears, she wipes the feet of Jesus, washing His feet with her tears and with the perfume and wiping those feet with her hair. It is a display of outrageous love. You talk about humility. You talk about, I don't care less about what anyone else might think. Here is a sinful woman whose life has obviously been transformed by Jesus. He loved her. He did not excuse her sin. 
But he lived with her and around her, I should say, in such a way that she could see that he cared for her soul. And probably her thought was, I've never met anyone who cared for me like this. And so she goes to this home of Simon the Pharisee. And you know, that kind of people, the wrong kind of people could attend feasts like that, but you could never get very close to the guest of honor's table. You were all right out on the fringes. But you needed to know your place. But she evidently didn't know her place by Simon's thinking. The third character is Jesus, and we have an outrageous Savior. Outrageous rudeness, outrageous love, and an outrageous Savior. As this woman does this, notice Luke 7, verses 39 through 41 Simon is thinking to himself, if he knew what manner of woman this was. And have you ever thought something that was really a double slap in the face to somebody? This is. It is a slap in the face of Jesus because he knows a whole lot more than Simon thinks he knows. And it is a slap in the face of a humble woman who has shown herself to be closer to the Lord than Simon. Here's something I want you to think about. Simon could only see this woman and what she had been. He could not see her for what she had become in Jesus. He couldn't see that. And as a result, he couldn't see himself as he really was. I was laughing this morning. I was on my way to the men's room, going to kind of take a look at the mirror and check things out, and I passed several of our young people on the way. Started talking to them. One of them looked up to me, said as sincerely as they could, Mike, you're old. (laughs) All right. I might not have seen myself that way when I looked in the mirror. I appreciate them saying it. You're old. Some of us have a really hard time seeing ourselves properly, but we are quick to see somebody else with 2020 vision. So, what Jesus does. In Luke 7, 36 through 50, is given illustration. Simon, I've got something to say to you. One man owed 500 denarii, 500 days' wages. Another owed 50 denarii, 50 days' wages. The one to whom the money was owed forgave both debts. Simon, answer me this, Jesus asked. Who loves 
more. And Simon says, I suppose the one who was forgiven the most would love the most. You know, in one way, and I hope that you'll jot this down in your Bibles or your notes. Repentance comes hardest for the self-respectable and self-righteous. It's hardest for those that are respected. Don't you know who I am? Simon the Pharisee. Repentance comes hardest for the self-respectable and the self-righteous. This woman is broken. She not only broke the alabaster box that had the perfume, her heart was broken that Jesus could treat her and love her as He did and make forgiveness possible for her. Now notice what the Lord goes on to do. Because when we are full of ourselves, self-righteousness and self-respect, I'm a respectable person in this community. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know about my bank account? Don't you know about the good that I've done? Simon the Pharisee has all those things in common with us. And yet he couldn't see himself as he really was. Now here's what Jesus says. You invited me to this celebration. Notice that Jesus not only associated with sinners, he associated with the religious. He went to both tables. He said, when I came into your house, you offered no water for my feet. You, but she... You, but she, a contrast repeatedly is made. You offer no water for my feet, but she used this expensive perfume, this ointment. You didn't dry my feet. She used her hair to dry my feet. She used her tears to wash my feet. You didn't even give me the kiss of common courtesy in the Eastern culture. You know, maybe on each cheek. And yet this woman has kissed my feet over and over. And then he says, Simon, I tell you that her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And he looks to the woman and says, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And I got to ask you, I wonder if Simon the Pharisee's heart was broken. Don't you? Number four. Luke 15, 1 and 2. Luke 15, 1 and 2. On this occasion, you have Jesus being criticized. He receives sinners and eats with them. He is a friend of the tax collectors and sinners. People murmur. Religious people 
because all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to Him. In Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, mark the word receives. The word means welcomes, waiting for with anticipation and glad to see Him. It's kind of like you may do when a loved one comes to your house that you hadn't seen in a long time. You welcome them. You've been waiting for them. You're so glad to see them. The term is used of Simeon in Acts 2.25 that he had been waiting for the coming of the Christ. Of Anna in Acts 2, rather Luke 2 and verse 38. The term is used of Joseph of Arimathea that he was waiting for, excited about, looking for the kingdom to come. And it's Joseph who gives that empty tomb for Jesus. The same term, looking, waiting, eagerly anticipating, is found in Titus 2 and verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Aren't you glad that Jesus looks forward to seeing He welcomes, He waits for sinners. Luke 15 talks about joy in heaven. What causes joy in heaven? One sinner who repents. Imagine about a room full of sinners. Joy in heaven. And these people accuse Jesus of receiving sinners and eating with them. And Jesus goes on to give three parables that speak of why people are lost. Some people are lost out of ignorance. Look at Luke chapter 15, verses 4 through 7, the lost sheep. Some are lost out of ignorance of their own. The tendency to stray, to violate God's will, to not listen to the word of the great shepherd Jesus, to not go by His will, but our own. In verses 8 through 10, some are lost out of negligence. Their own negligence or others' negligence concerning them. The lost coin. One sheep out of a hundred being lost wasn't acceptable to that shepherd and one coin being lost wasn't acceptable to the woman. Let me ask you this question. Did the shepherd do right to go and look for the one? Did the woman do right to look for the one lost coin when she still had nine? Did the father in Luke 15, 11 through 32 do right to wait on the prodigal to come? And the answer, according to Jesus, by giving these parables is yes, yes. And yes, 
Some people are lost out of rebelliousness, Luke 15, 11 through 24. Some are lost out of self-righteousness. And when you stop and think of it, whether a person is lost out of ignorance or negligence or rebelliousness or self-righteousness, a person's lost. They're lost. And Jesus gives these parables so that those who talk about Him receiving and eating with sinners could know that heaven rejoices when a sinner comes to God. And you'd think that religious leaders would too. Finally, Luke 19. The fifth of the five passages, Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus' name means righteous one. But maybe he'd not been living too righteously because he was a chief tax collector. And as a chief tax collector, the likelihood, at least as most people thought about him, was that he was a cheat. And that there was no, he was a renegade, he was a scoundrel, and that he was able to skim a lot of money that was owed in taxes off the top and keep it himself just as long as Rome got the amount of money that they wanted from that particular district, that particular area. So without question, we might say Zacchaeus was a very wealthy individual in all probability because of his position. And yes, it was a position that would have made it easy to be less than ethical. But one of the things that the Gospel of Luke is about is if you've got money, you better think about responsibly using it. And you better think about the awfulness of sin and how sin is a universal problem and yet Jesus is a Savior that came to save us from sin. And it's a story that the children sing about and know well. But here's Zacchaeus, small in stature, but large in curiosity. He's no doubt heard things about Jesus, and Jesus is coming to the town in which he lives. And I can see this. Here is a person who's extremely well-to-do and is a man of prominence running And he is running, trying to see Jesus. And ultimately, he climbs a tree to get a view of Jesus. I want to know about this man. I've heard that he is the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Would he be my friend? And I'm sure it was one of those scenes where there was just a mass of people. But the Son of God says, Zacchaeus, he's up in that tree. He knows he's there. Come down from there. I'm coming to your house. What this passage does is just summarize many of the great themes of Luke. The joy of salvation, repentance, and restitution. If I have taken from anyone wrongfully, I restore to them. And it all comes together in this passage. 
And it won't be long before Jesus hangs on a cross. Just in case you may not have gotten this. Get these truths. Truth number one. Jesus often drew sinners to Him because He cared for them. Jesus often drew sinners to Him because He cared for them. Perhaps it is one of the strongest indictments on the church of the Lord in many places that we do not draw more sinners to us. Secondly, Jesus was willing to spend time with sinners. He made time for them. The question is, do we? As a preacher, sometimes it's easy for me to get so wrapped up in the church and the brotherhood, which has a place that we lose sight of sinners and the lost who always had a place in the ministry of Jesus. He invested in them. He took time to be with them. Third, Jesus prayed for the lost. Here at Westside, I hear many a public prayer for the sick, and I am grateful that we are concerned about them, but I do not hear enough prayers for the sinner and the lost. If we pray more about this, maybe we'll become more like our Lord in reaching lost souls. He prayed for them. I think that the apostles had to often think about how Jesus prayed for them, even though they were ignorant and negligent and rebellious and self-righteous sometimes. But the Lord prayed for us. And then notice this, finally. The Lord's life and ministry and even His death revolved around the salvation of sinners to the praise and glory of God. The salvation of sinners to the praise and glory of God. God commends His own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You have listened well, and the lesson is yours. May God help us to be a congregation that loves sinners like Jesus. May we never excuse the seriousness and awfulness of sin, but may people know we care about them. Years ago, I heard someone pray this prayer, and it may be a good prayer for us to think about. May our hearts be broken by the things that break the heart of our Lord. Let the church say amen. Let us stand and sing.